Hi, Freddie. Welcome to the Never Fully Heard podcast. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, good to see you. Um, where I want to start is, do you mind just giving a quick like, professional um, background of yourself um, to help give some context to the conversation? Yes, absolutely. I'm an integrative counsellor um, and I specialise in working with addictions, eating disorders and um, other compulsive conditions and uh, emotional well-being in general. And um, I did my um, master's in addiction psychology and counselling um, back in 2005. And uh, it's taken me on a journey through um, the addiction world but on into other facets of mental health and um, well-being alongside it yeah amazing thank you um where i want to, to then start is what's your um when did you first understand what mental health even was um it wasn't until i encountered my own issues um i came from a fairly traditional background um and uh you know within within my family of origin there was a lot of love and there was a lot of great stuff happening um there wasn't a great deal of emotional communication going on and um and as a result of that, I, it just hadn't even occurred to me that I could talk to anyone else about how I felt. It was a complete revelation when I discovered that that was actually a possibility um, and how much of a difference it makes to, to open up and to, you know, there's that old saying, a, a problem shared is a problem halved. And, um, and I'd say that um, it doesn't take that much for someone to be able to, to shift how they feel you know, depending on the complexity and how long someone's been working with a particular condition, you know, that's going to influence it. But just being able to bring what we're experiencing and know that it's okay to articulate it to another human being can make the world a difference. So yeah, so so I came to an understanding of mental health and um, emotional well-being um, through my own crisis, which happened when I was around, uh, well, sort of between the age of 19 and 22. And, uh, and was it... So ther- was it therapy that helped you get through that crisis? I don't think I would have been open to therapy if it hadn't have been for the fact that every single other avenue was exhausted. So I had a health condition. I had chronic fatigue and irritable bowel syndrome. And um, it was pretty extreme. You know, I had to uh, quit university. Um, I was kind of holed up for a couple of years um, living with my parents, wondering what on earth had happened uh, as I had no energy to do anything. And, you know, I was experiencing a lot of um, physical discomfort. <clears throat> and... Um, and you know, we interpreted what was happening to me through the lens of physical health. Um, it hadn't occurred to any of us that there might be some emotional and mental components to what was going on. Um, but what emerged over time was that, um, I had, uh, my relationship with food was very unhealthy and I'd been using that unconsciously to manage how I felt. Um, and, uh, that the consequences of that and generally repressing my emotional self were that my energy levels had just fallen out of the bottom there was just nothing there and <clears throat> although that was an extremely painful and difficult time and, and very isolating um it was also uh, an extraordinary gift because it required me to start to explore the internal terrain of who i am and what was happening inside me and i don't think if that if that hadn't have happened i probably would never have felt the motivation to connect with myself i think i probably would have continued with business as usual doing what i thought was expected of me and living the life that you know my culture and my upbringing had decreed as normal and uh and i think i would have missed out on a lot of um very beautiful things that as a result of having to encounter all this stuff in myself i've, I've been able to connect with yeah. yeah thank you thank you for sharing I appreciate it. it's um you know a very personal story and how did that lead you to a career in mental health and it, and it being a, a full-time mm. occupation well, I think it's probably quite a common pathway for a lot of people is somehow their own lives being touched 
or affected by by their own or someone close to them suffering and that catalyzing an interest in okay you know how can i support other people with this and you know for me the thing that really helped me in the end was was ending up going into um, a 12-step rehabilitation center and um whilst i was there i got the kind of level of support from from members of staff but also from other recovering well, it was addicts, people with eating disorders, people with um, drug and alcohol addiction and any other type of process addiction you can think of all together. And that kind of cauldron um, enabled me to, to really kind of find the courage to look at myself and talk about how I felt and, and realise that I wasn't the only one and, and that there were lots of other people in, in the same sort of boat. And during the course of that, uh, I suppose I, I sort of realised that um, uh, it was the skill of those people around me that really supported me to feel able you know, to kind of start to peel off the layers of the onion and make it feel safe enough to do it. Um, and although I didn't become a therapist straight away, uh, which some people do because they're just so into it, I was pretty young. I was only 22 when I came, came through that. And, um, and, and I realised for the first time in my life that my life was completely and utterly my own and that I could do anything that I wanted to do with it. And, uh, and my great passion was music. And so I went off and worked in the music industry for, for three or four years and, you know, had an amazing time. But... When I came to the end of that period, what I realised is that I was actually way more interested in what everyone in the room was feeling than in capturing the perfect sound in the recording studio or you know whatever else I was supposed to be focusing on. And that was the moment at which I, I thought, well, I might as well use that to my advantage <laughs> and hopefully help other people at the same time. So. Yeah, it's great to hear. It's great to hear that story. And for, for the, I guess most people would have heard the word therapy, but for those that, I guess, haven't had it or don't have, a, I guess, a, a good understanding or a, how would you describe therapy? in a kind of a, a broad sense there are different types of lots of very different types of therapy different schools of therapy so depending upon who you choose to go and see there'll be a different orientation um, and expectation um, and there'll be different modalities which they're helping you with <clears throat> but in its most basic form most different therapeutic modalities whether it's you know simple short-term counseling all the way through to to really long-term um, deeply relational psychotherapy um, the understanding is, is that you're being supported by someone who is coming alongside you, who will listen to you non-judgmentally, who has a professional understanding of what it is that you're encountering. So rather than simply listening, hopefully they'll also have an understanding of the territory that you're bringing to them and be able to make helpful suggestions where appropriate. But they'll also know that their job is not to fix you or to uh, kind of magically try and make everything better because that can have, serve, that can have the problem of making you feel like you shouldn't be talking about what you're struggling with or that you should be able to solve it. Um, <clears throat> so that person hopefully can really give you a sense of like, whatever I say to this person, it's going to be okay. And I can really bring my, my, my greatest fears and my, my sort of worst thoughts that I have about myself or other people and for that to be okay. And when, in my experience, when I do that and often other people, it seems to be the case for as well, um, it takes a lot of the power out of what I'm really afraid of. It, it sort of loses its, um, its hold. And then I can start to look at it rationally. And I can also start to look at what's underneath it. You know, what, what, what is that obsessive thought that keeps coming back or that kind of dream that I keep having? Um, what is that speaking to in the deeper history of my life and, and what, I've, what I've experienced? And uh, it doesn't have to be this terrifying thing that I just have to repress and ignore and push out of my awareness. It can actually lead me to understand myself so much better. So it could be short term. It could be six, six sessions. Um, and then at that point, you finished, you're done. If you do that, it's probably going to be an issue, a behavioral issue that you want to help with specifically. <clears throat> uh, or it could, you could do six sessions and then review and see what's happening. 
midterm therapy is anything usually from 12 to um, 12 sessions to so three months and then and then more than six months would be would be uh, considered to be long-term therapy and some people you know they just find it so helpful that they want to continue it even after the initial problem uh, has happened and that's great and I, and, and I think it's it's everyone has their own path with it but it's also ideally the purpose of therapy is to support someone to be able to then come into a place in their life where they're able to move forwards without the need for professional help ongoingly um, and to incorporate the lessons that they've learned into into how they hold themselves in, the, in their lives. Yeah thank you that was, in, that was incredibly explained. Um, from your experience what are some of the themes that come up with men and their mental health? You know it's, it's I find regularly it's, it's a very different um, territory that I'm, I'm working with working with with men as opposed to women and of course there are huge overlaps and um and the whole sort of gender identification question you know is one that i'm i'm, I'm very conscious of um but i think that there are orientations that men and women have towards um <clears throat> that attune themselves towards quite quite naturally and automatically and, um, and i find it helpful to, to acknowledge them um so a big tendency i would say for men is is um is to repress our emotional selves to uh, to conform to the ideal of um, efficacy over uh, and action over being and um, and feeling, um, thinking and uh, sort of um, um, well, yeah, thinking is very it's very much uh, approved of, um, whereas feeling isn't so much. And I think that that has quite a big impact on um, how we respond to the different emotions. So, <clears throat> um, sadness, in my experience, and fear are both fairly unwelcome within the masculine psyche. So we tend to repress those. We, we tend to uh, you know, not admit to them, to ourselves or to others. Um, whereas if we are going to feel something that's not sort of just okay or good, then that tends to be anger. So a lot more people that I work with, a lot more men that I work with, would identify as at times feeling angry or anger being more accessible to them than sadness or, um, or fear, for example. Mm, that's th- so interesting, that word... Um accessible do you think that's because it's almost like a like a habit that people have learned that they're more they've regularly more regularly access that so therefore it becomes easier and easier to is, is that the kind of what you were getting at yeah i think so and i think we're socialized into different roles and um although those roles very happily are, are breaking down and becoming a lot more um uh fluid and questionable than they were um they're nonetheless i mean you know many 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 generations worth of legacy behind them <clears throat> and um and so we've got a long way to go still but you know just phrases like boys don't cry um carry a lot of weight um and they carry a lot more weight when they've been when they've been sort of followed up with action you know rejection teasing humiliation etc <clears throat> in the playground or perhaps with a member of our families um you know that that leaves a really strong impression and you know something as a as a therapist that i'm very aware of is that the messages that we receive when we're young in those formative developmental years, <clears throat> you know, they they literally get baked into our neuropsychology. So um, our brain's architecture is wired around what we experience and what we see around us when we're in that very early stages. So <clears throat> even though intellectually we can recognise, oh, there's nothing wrong with feeling sad, there's nothing wrong with you know uh, expressing fear, that's not what we're experiencing in our physical bodies, and it takes. Um, it takes uh, the willingness to to meet those conditions within that, that conditioning within ourselves, and to meet the fear that that will bring up because we're breaking contracts, behavioural contracts, essentially that we agreed to without realising it when we were very young, and that brings up a lot of fear because 
you know, our, 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 we're very intelligent and, and our systems know how to adapt to the environment in which they grow up in and they're very good at it. Um, the problem is that then, that then creates a lot of problems further down the line and uh, we have to unlearn all of that unhealthy conditioning from earlier on. Mm, that, the, the phrase you put was um, emotional con- contracts that we agreed to without knowing. That's a, that really just rung true for some of the therapy that I've done that I had almost, um, it's almost like I'd agreed to play this role as a character um, without knowing it as a child to help, uh, whether it's like please or to to get some sort of affirmation in a certain moment in time. And then that's played its way out across my whole life. But that's a, yeah, you put, you put words to something that I hadn't, uh, yeah, I hadn't, yeah, haven't, haven't before. So that was, I thought that was really interesting. Um, what, what does the, the feeling of like emotional repression, how, I guess, what is, what is that and how does it manifest itself in people's lives and their bodies? Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful phrase, um, living lives of quiet desperation, which I think can sum up a lot of what depression is all about. Um, in my experience, very often, depression is, is, isn't uh, some kind of random chemical imbalance, although, of course, it involves a chemical imbalance within our, within our, our brains. Um, but it's, it has roots you know, in, in, in other things. And um, if we've been taught that, or we've somehow taken on the belief that it's not okay to feel what we feel, it's maybe not okay to you know get angry or it's not okay to get sad or it's not okay even to be rambunctious and happy as a child maybe there wasn't enough space you know within our household for that to be okay um then we learn to adapt as we've said and and uh and that has an impact on our energy system on our you know emotional system and that that emotion uh, i often i often com- compare our emotional lives to the weather you know there's no there's no good or bad about it. It's simply uh, experiences that are passing through our bodies and our minds and um, that have huge amounts of benefit to them, all of them, just as the rain nourishes you know, the plants that need to grow. Our tears and our sadness um, are essential for us to be able to feel love and connection. You know, if we didn't, if we didn't uh, value the connections that we have, we wouldn't feel loss over losing them. So <clears throat> they're two sides, you know, grief and, and, and love are two sides of the same coin. And so if we, if we repress that part of ourselves where we can't let ourselves feel our grief, for example, then that creates a deadening across the whole of our emotional systems and uh, it builds up. And at, and at first, of course, you don't realize it. You don't know it. This is the system you've grown up in. This is the norm. Um, and it's only over time when, when you know, your energy begins to go down or you find yourself uh, constantly reaching for something that, that's tipped over from being a helpful strategy for managing stress. <laughs> to something that's actually numbing you out and, and having increasingly negative consequences in your life, for example. And that's when we know, we realize that there's a bit of a problem, but we don't really know how to solve it because it, it, it wasn't something that we consciously created. It just came about. Mm. And I guess what interested you enough about addiction to want to specialize or lean into that as a, um, a part of your kind of a professional development? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, it, it's um, the, the kind of recovery pathway that I went through for my eating disorder issues um, kind of categorized what I was going through as an addictive process and um, you know there there are some question marks around that and there are lots of different ways of looking at it Um, but for me that was at the time a very helpful way to look at things and I recognized that if I hadn't have um, developed um, you know my coping strategies around food which really numbed me out and and helped me to repress all of that emotional pain that I wasn't even aware was there um, then I probably would have gone down the drugs route. Um, I, I just loved anything that would help me feel great, you know, and numb me out. 
um, rather than being connected with what was actually going on inside me. So, um, so yeah, so I, um, I kind of considered myself to be a recovering addict, you know, in, in lots of different ways. And, um, and, you know, my understanding now is that any addiction or any um, compulsive, you know, self-destructive strategy um, is, um, you know, it's part of, it's, it's simply a symptom and an expression of a deeper underlying malaise. And, um, and so, so although my training was specifically around addiction and um, addiction psychology, of course, that involves looking at all of the deeper issues that create that response. And so trauma and attachment issues where we don't feel safe in, in those primary relationships growing up, um, I will see as part of the causal factors for, for, um, for addiction. Are there any skews one way or the other on gender with addiction? Or is it, is it fairly equal in terms of how the different genders experience addiction? That's a good question. There's certainly a lot more women who experience issues around food, specifically in body, body image, than there are men, although that, that has been changing a lot. It's very different, the um, composure of eating disorder services now to what it was when, when I came around um, 20 years ago or so. Um, and... Um, but nonetheless, you know, those pressures are um, more keenly felt, you know, within within the female population. Um, and, you know, types of drug use, um, there tends to be a higher prevalence of, of, of um, male use for um, cocaine and um, some of the, you know, more sort of hedonistic um, drugs. But um, I would say that, you know, they can express themselves in, in, in both genders very, very much. Um, that there is, there is, you know, I kind of wanted to touch on this earlier, and so it is a good opportunity to bring it back in. Something that I find really helpful is to recognise that I don't believe that um, are the different types of um, the different orientations of the masculine and the feminine psyche. I don't believe that they're entirely cultural constructs. There's uh, that's a huge part of it. You know, we're conditioned into looking at the world in these ways. Um, but there are also these archetypal um, orientations that seem to run through cultures, you know, across history and, and geography. Um, and um, Jung, you know, great um, protégé of Freud, was really interested in these, and he did a lot of exploration around it. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, anyway, so he, you know, uh, there are certain orientations that it would seem the masculine and the feminine psyche um, are drawn to and are strong within. And that doesn't mean that a man is strong within the masculine necessarily and a woman is strong within the, the feminine. Both men and women have full access to the masculine and the feminine aspects of themselves. Um, but often there is a primary orientation you know, towards the masculine within a male uh, figure and the same the other way uh, within the feminine. So, so um, I find that very helpful to hold because um, uh, otherwise I think it can create quite a lot of shame within particularly within the masculine psyche you know we you know we're living in the um thankfully you know post-feminist period and recognizing the impact of um <clears throat> you know the, the the dominant paradigm of of um you know a male run and dominated society and the trauma and the legacy that that's created is is vast you know it's going to take us a long time to deconstruct all of that and to heal all of that um, uh, but I think that that presents a particular problem for um, for men today, because how do we how do we hold that the awareness of the impact um, that that's had, um, and how do we not uh, feel huge levels of shame about that? How do we not 
feel very concerned about and fearful of that perhaps more wild masculine aspect that is orientated towards um, towards action and um, um, instinct and sexuality, for example. You know, it, it's it's um it's something that we we have to come into relationship with. And I came from a place of, I think, being very conscious of the impact of um, of, of of our history on women, and uh, and and really sort of feeling a lot of shame as a result of that. But what I've come to realise is that that's not a helpful response. It's it's good to recognise it and it's good to be emotionally attuned to the impact of it. But but actually, um, in order for healing to happen. Um, I need to be able to uh, honor myself, the whole of myself as I am, and step into the positive aspects of the masculine psyche rather than the toxic ones, which is what history has been sort of littered with examples of. You know, but, but there is this upstanding, noble aspect of masculinity that I think you know, has got quite lost within, understandably, you know, within, within this redressing of the imbalance that there has been. Um, and there's some really fantastic um, men's organizations out there that support I think uh, those of us who struggle with this stuff to come into a more balanced uh, place around it and reclaim, you know, a sense of, of healthy pride about being a man and, and the positive impact that that can have on, on our own children, on our sons and on our daughters and on our partners and on our mothers and, and everything else. 100%. That's, yeah, 100%. What is it uh, about, I guess, masculinity that men really struggle to, to come to terms with? Because it feels as if from I guess listening to a lot of podcasts and doing some reading it feels like there's a lot of men that feel lost that they, they can't fully connect with their masculinity or can't connect with some of their emotions or feel um ashamed of having like anger or having like a, not understanding why there's a certain like darkness or aggression that is a part of themselves and yeah I guess how do yeah how have you seen that play out yeah um I think it plays out in society all the time in gang culture and um or the opposite extreme of of just numbing and dissociation and and suicidal impulse um and you know i think that there's a sort of wider context to be acknowledged as well um post-industrialization um and the breakdown of the nuclear family and the absence of um of, of sort of healthy and embodied role models male role models um i think is you know um, had a big impact on society because we go away now to work whereas within you know we are living in an absolutely radically altered societal structure to what what humanity has been experiencing for two hundred thousand years or however long it is it's taken us to get to this point I mean, literally in the flash of an eye you know in a few generations essentially we've gone from you know foraging and and uh, living in, in tribal networks where we're deeply connected to one another and reliant on one another and exposed to one another into a, a a hugely atomized society where you know sons will not see their fathers for you know the majority of their childhoods you know some some hours at the weekend you know if we're lucky and and that has an impact um on a on another level i think as a society in general we're um you know we're struggling to to catch up with the pace of the technological advances that are going on as well we've we've come so far in so short a time and we we were like kids playing with these things without knowing what they're doing to us and um and so i think a lot of us are are in a state of hyper arrival um you know we're we're just kind of surviving you know the best we can and uh and so um you know we're particularly prone i think at this period within humanity's history to um 
um, to, to reaching out for things which feel good and, and certainly are convenient and pleasurable in the moment, but which aren't conducive to our well-being longer term or to our relationships um, or to our sense of purpose and connection to something greater. So <clears throat> um, for me, coming back into the body is really helpful with this. Coming back into an environment that helps remind me that I'm actually an animal um, and I have a body that has needs. You know, I can't exist solely through a screen and uh, it's, it's hugely helpful. And so I've become much more interested over time in, in nature-based therapy and um, contexts that, that support us to come back into connection with with basically this entire ecosystem that we're entirely dependent upon, but, but have become so alienated from, you know, to the extent that we can actually be in a process of destroying it and not recognize what we're doing to ourselves and to the rest of the world. So, yeah. That, that phrase hyper arousal, I think is, um, it's just so true in today's society. I mean, phone addiction is, we see it as a, it's almost like a, it's a jovial topic for, for many that people are spending, you know, four or five hours a day on their phones. But if you add that up across a week, like months, years, it's so much of your life is sucked into this phone and you're comparing yourself to the most attractive that it's, um, and porn addiction is another one, which is hyper arousal, which I think is, um, I think we're going to see some really devastating impacts on um, young men in particular, but I think both, I think it's also affecting some um, of my female friends as well. Um, but I guess it's less addressed at the moment, but um, I, th I think I can name at least three or four people in, in my reasonably close network of friends who struggle with it. And it's not considered the same as um, some other addictions. Cause I think there's almost like a delayed, there's a delayed impact of it from what I understand. Um, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've seen much of that and what the impact is. I see, I see a lot of it, um, and I think you're absolutely right that it's um, it's way more prevalent than we realise, um, you know, because there's so much shame often attached to, to that. It's done in secret, and it's felt we feel like there's something wrong with us because of it. But <clears throat> but in fact, you know, all that's happening is that we're you know, a little bit like the obesity epidemic. You know, we, we've suddenly got access to all of these things which you know only a few generations ago were, 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 were completely inaccessible. And and how how can we possibly know how to regulate our relationship to this stuff? You know, we're, it's so new. And, um, and uh, but yes, it's very, very powerful porn addiction because it's acting on all the same parts of the same sort of neurocircuits within the brain that the other addictive processes and substances are working on, but you don't need to introduce, you don't have the problem of having to go out and score, you know, um, it's just so instantly accessible. And, um, and I think it's having a huge impact on people's capacity to, to actually experience pleasure in, in the act of physical connection, because we're now, it's, it's like our, our sexuality is developed through the context of of objectification, you know, in a way that it, it wasn't before. So there's a lot there's a lot of healing to be done around this stuff, and you know, it's it's really encouraging to see people starting to talk about it more and and bring it out into the open. And it's a really really serious problem. And I think um, part of the problem is it's a little bit like smoking. You know, if we're going to compare it to a to a physical addiction, you know, there's no immediate negative consequence. So what's the problem? You know, it's only when you've got cancer, you know, sort of, you know, 20 years down the line that you're like, shit, I should have thought about that. I should have listened to it. And, and it's the same with porn addiction. You know, it feels harmless. It feels normal. Everyone's doing it. Whatever. What's the big deal? You know, and, um, you know, not to say that there isn't a place for exploring that part of ourselves, but it's, we just have to be really careful about, um, you know, what we're opening up in ourselves and, um, and, and, and try to be honest with ourselves about whether there's any, uh, unintended consequences from the amount of exposure that we're having to it, you know. Are we staying on on porn websites for longer than we intended to? Um, is it impacting our desire and our motivation to go out there and actually seek 
uh, an embodied sexual experience or, or a relationship or partnership that could kind of give us that as part of as part of it. Um, are we finding ourselves requiring more extreme material to to feel the same level of arousal that we used to feel from just you know, watching something fairly vanilla? Um, and you know, those are some of the hallmarks of the preoccupation. Do we find ourselves looking forward to the moment when we can? Um, do we find ourselves lying to our partners about whether we're doing this or not? All of that stuff indicates that there might be some kind of dependence developing that needs looking at. And once someone gets to the level, I guess, is there any sort of definition of what the actual addiction, is there a certain amount that someone is watching that they should at that point consider reaching out for help or to look into getting to getting help? Is there a certain level you'd say that is a, at that point? Yeah. Um, one of the problems with measuring addiction is defining addiction. And, um, you know, it's something that's that's um, regularly debated. But um, ultimately, it's when the negative consequences start to outweigh the positive impacts that we realise that there's a problem. And, um, and, you know, for a lot of people, we don't want to admit it to ourselves because it's it's serving a purpose for us, you know. And if there is repressed emotional stuff for somebody, which for most of us there is, you know, um, that's part of the human experience. Um, if, there, if that is sort of in play, then, <clears throat> then the part of our psyche that's come up with this strategy as a way for dealing with our discomfort is not going to want to relinquish it. And so this is where the whole concept of denial comes in, you know, which is a big one within, within addiction, because um, our brain will literally discredit the negatives and focus only on the positives, you know, to, even when all the evidence stacks, stacks up um, the other way. And so that's where often it's not until there start being external consequences, negative consequences, which we can't deny any longer. And other people start to see that we start to kind of be like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I really do need to do something here. Um, but if we can find the courage to be honest with ourselves earlier on and maybe confide in someone and, and talk to someone, okay, hey, you know, is it normal? Like, this is how much I'm kind of going online and looking at this stuff. And, um, and uh, you know, and also to choose wisely who we, who we ask to do that with, because if, if we only <laughs> if we only ask the person who we know already, you know, has a similar kind of level of engagement to us, same as the alcoholic who will only compare himself to all of his mates who, you know, he meets at the, at the pub every night. Um, so, yeah, we do need to be mindful of the ways in which we evade being honest with ourselves mm-hmm. yeah thank you for sharing i think i guess porn addiction is a tough one because i guess people can um unless I, I guess someone's partner may start to notice if they have drop a desire for sex or they aren't able to perform in the same way but if you're i guess single then you can avoid the conversation because it's only the the, the partners you may be engaging in casually that would ever notice a difference or may not even notice a difference um so that's where that's where i think it's going to be really tough to address but I think the more conversations, the, the better. Um, yeah, the next, I just wanted to, to ask before we kind of um, wrap up is for people that haven't experienced what it's like to feel some of the addictive tendencies what or know how to recognize in other people, what are, what are some of the ones for, say, in particular, alcohol or other addictive behaviors that you've seen that can um, help people understand it better? Yeah, well, well, very often that there is a, um, you know, there's a kind of, there might be a, a trigger event that is particularly stressful or, or distressing for somebody that 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 they respond to um by stepping up their drinking or um you know intensifying their restrict restriction if they've got issues around food or um <clears throat> uh you know it, it, it's and it might be that you notice that your friend or your family member rather than alcohol or drug use being incidental and just sort of on the side part of what they do 
it's actually starting to determine their choices. And so they'll, they'll only want to meet up with you if it's within the context of being able to drink as well. Or, and and, and it's, there's, there's that subtle shift. And, and, and that's the point at which, you know, when the alarm bells start going off. Or, you know, you notice them starting to be less responsive, um, less attuned to your or other people's emotional needs, um, isolating more, you know, not, not responding. Um, and, um, you know, quite often there might start to be some physical health impacts. That person will be a bit tired, getting ill a bit more often. Um, you know, playing truant a little bit more, missing stuff. Um, there might be financial consequences start to stack up, you know, spending too much on this thing. Legal consequences, of course, is a big one, you know. Um, and, you know, and yeah, and health consequences too, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's just about looking at... And there might also be more emotional dysregulation. So, you know, flatness, um, depression, um, uh, more kind of explosive emotions, that sort of thing. To, look at. Mm. To, to finish is there anything that you want to, that you're passionate about or that you think would be an interesting point to, to finish the podcast on um happy for you to, to talk about um anything that you uh you want to really yeah thank you well as i mentioned uh, a little bit earlier i am um, uh i've become really interested in, in eco psychology as it's described a sort of emerging field of of, of taking people out into natural environments and settings to do therapeutic work and um, there's all sorts of historical context for that. You know, Dickens, um, he, he was notor notoriously a massive walker. He would take himself out and, and walk for you know, miles on end to get rid of his depression and to, and to feel better. Um, you know, through to indigenous cultures, which have um, vision quest experiences where they go out and expose themselves intentionally to the elements, you know, and might have a practice of, of, of not eating and not sleeping for you know, four days and nights in a row in, in a in a wild place and just seeing what comes and <clears throat> you know all of that it's good to do within with support and within a context that can help them to process it because you know we need it's how we process it and digest those experiences is, is every bit as, as important as as doing something dramatic and, and um, initiatory like that but yeah so so i've i've been working more and more in, in that sort of arena and and i work down in devon um, near dartmoor and um i have a retreat center which i've been setting up for, for the last five years or so and um, people can come and they can have sort of their own individual um, experiences and retreats. Um, and there are also wider um, trainings and, and, and retreats that go on there. It's called The Hearth. Uh, TheHearthDevon.com is the uh, website if you're interested. Um, and there's also a charity that I work with called Right to Freedom, R-I-T-E, Right to Freedom. And we take recovering addicts up onto Dartmoor for um, rites of passage experiences and focusing on mindfulness, creativity and nature connection. And that's beautiful and powerful work. Um, and <clears throat> yes, I think, you know, there's a strong movement within uh, existing services towards um, green spaces and incorporating the unbelievably powerful healing, you know, capacity of, of nature into our mental health services as well. It's, it's a sort of no-brainer. It's a win-win situation for everybody. You know, it doesn't cost very much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, everyone feels better. And as a therapist, you know, um, it's really interesting to work in that space because it, it, you know, whereas if I'm sitting in a room with someone, you know, primarily I and that person are the interacting stimulus and how I respond will support that person. And, you know, the thoughts that come in and the feelings that I'm experiencing are, are integrate into the session and hopefully it will be useful information that will open things up. But move into a, nat into, into a natural space and there's a whole host of um, stimu stimulus and ephemera that 
that can trigger off things for people and can and can open up avenues of exploration that are fascinating and liberating and embodying and and all those things so i would encourage anyone who's interested to to explore that as a, as a way um and, and and if you know if someone's got just a quite simple sort of aversion to the idea of going and sitting in a room and talking to someone about how you feel straight across from them and, and feels intimidated by that more and more there's therapy opening up where you know it's, it's a walk and talk situation where you're alongside them you're not having to have that sort of intense you know almost face-off experience and that can be really helpful so yeah that they sound like amazing projects and um what were the two different uh websites for the the project and the charity what were they yeah so um it's the hearth devon.com that's hearth as in the old hearth and home sort of center of center of uh, of warmth and nourishment um and right to freedom dot uh, org dot uk um and my just my conventional counseling website is freddieweaver.co.uk and that's freddie with a y so you can catch me on there Amazing. Thank you for coming on. That was, um, yeah, I felt like I learned a lot and um, an incredible conversation. So thank you. Thanks so much, Nick. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for asking me.